Hi, this is Anishka Fernandopoli. I hope this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button under my picture on dharmaseed.org or go to my website, anushkaf.org, A-N-U-S-H-K-A-F.org, and click on donate. Thanks. I appreciate your support. So I'm going to start with a little chant. Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa So here in uh, Devon in the UK, we're carrying on this fine tradition of practicing Dhamma. And uh, this chant is one that is done in Buddhist monasteries all over the world, in which people at this very same moment are doing these practices that we've been engaged in uh, from early morning till uh, late at night. So I myself was um, born in the U.S. and grew up there, but my family is originally from Sri Lanka. And I started my Dharma practice uh, in the U.S. when I was in uh, university, but subsequently went to uh, Sri Lanka and lived in a monastery for a while uh, in which there was a lot of chanting done uh, in the evenings and mornings. And I mentioned to someone in uh, one of my groups who was um, complaining about how early we wake up here that in that monastery, uh, the wake-up time, I believe, was 3.30 a.m. And then (laughs) we got started about 4 with the schedule uh, after some gruel-like substance. Uh, So, (laughs) and then it went on till about, uh, yeah, maybe 9.30, 10 or so. so, you know, this is pretty cushy here, right? The <laughs> starting at 6.45 and everything. But so this, uh, this section here, again, is the Dhamma talk. And uh, again, I want to reflect again on what is Dhamma. So this teachings of the Buddha or uh, nature. And for me, this word Dhamma uh, is meaningful, particularly in understanding it as nature. And as something that's true about the truth of the way things are. But this particular historical uh, person, uh, Buddha, discovered through his, let's say, contemplative uh, experiments and investigations. But in discovering this, what he discovered was not something kind of abstruse or complicated that he cooked up in the forest and that now you have to like, memorize or something like that. You know, it's actually something that's true about uh, experiential reality or about the way the world is constructed, the way that we construct the world. And that which is true about nature or about the way experience is constructed uh, for us as human beings is the same in this day and age, in the 21st century, as it was in the 6th century uh, B.C., So there's a way in which this discovery is something that we are also engaging in, this investigation. And as we gain uh, insight into this, you could say, uh, as we gain some uh, wisdom around what is the truth of 
the way things are constructed or the truth of the way things are, or maybe more accurately, the truth of the way things have come to be, then we learn to live in greater alignment with this. And the more we live in alignment with this, the less we suffer. The less we cause others to suffer, the more harmonious a life we have, uh, the greater sense of well-being we have, regardless of changing circumstances. So that is ultimately the well-being that is promised by this path, is the happiness, the contentedness, the peace that is beyond changing circumstances. So it's helpful to recognize that there's aspects of life that we already have learned about, and uh, yeah, aspects of nature, you could say, or aspects of the way the world works, and that we have learned to live in alignment with. So, for example, on a very simple kind of mundane level, you could say, uh, there's something about the way that world works that we might call the law of gravity. So the law of gravity describes something about uh, how objects seem to be drawn to the earth. And, uh, you know, there's mathematical formulas, this and that, but you don't really need to know all that. You just need to understand how things work and then try to live in alignment with that. So small children don't know how this works, maybe. Like babies you see sometimes experimenting with this law of gravity. So maybe they're in their high chair and they'll be like dropping something from here. It's like, oh. So you see what, oh, okay, it fell, right? So then what happens, what happens if you do it on this side? Like, okay, same thing happens, you know. And then what if you, what if you do it and you're not looking? Like, oh, same thing happens. So then after a while you get the idea, right? And... Uh, you know, by the time children are, uh, you know, relatively, like, by the time, probably, like, kindergarten, even earlier, right? They, they kind of understand this law of gravity, and by adults, we've mostly mastered this, uh, such that I know, like, okay, if I'm going to place this glass of water somewhere, if I place it in midair, likely the same thing will happen to it as happened to all the other stuff. So there will be a splash and broken glass and a mess and splash the people in the front row, so... To live in alignment with this means to understand that and then, okay, I place it in this table and then uh, things are okay. okay. Less mess, stress, unnecessary uh, dukkha, you could say. So like this, you learn to live in alignment with uh, the dharma, the truth of the way things are, and then you lead a life of less uh, mess and stress and suffering. And maybe if even sometimes, you know, once you've understood and sort of mastered this, mostly as adults we have by and large mastered this, uh, and we don't need to know the mathematical formula again, we don't need to know as like, is somebody running that, who is running it, right? Like, who knows? You could make an idea about that, but it doesn't matter, it's the same thing, right? Like, don't place things in midair or they're going to get drawn to the ground. Uh, and say if sometime you just accidentally, you know, like something falls like that, uh, now, because I, I've understood the basic principle of this, I could just pick it up, or actually Catherine could pick it up, <laughs> and I can't reach it. Uh, <laughs> exactly, yes. So she could pick it up, but it wouldn't have to be like, oh, why me, why now, why did that happen, right? Like, you don't need to take it personally. There's nothing personal about it, right? There's nothing personal about these aspects about the way things work, you know? I mean, you could choose to take it personally, but that would be an add-on, you know, that would be totally an add-on. And, yeah, so this happened to be actually in their kitchen earlier. You know, something fell off the counter, and so I picked it up and I put it back, right? So it didn't have to be like, how did that happen? Why did that happen? Why did it happen to me? Why, you know? um, and that's kind of the add-on that we do, right, in life, 
to other aspects of uh, the way things work because we don't understand them and we haven't learned to live in alignment with them. So in some ways that is the, uh, that's the enterprise that we're in here is investigating um, what are some, what are aspects of the truth of the way things are? What are ways in which we are living out of alignment with uh, nature in which we don't understand yet? You know, we haven't come to wisdom in some way. So we've been talking about them and exploring them, uh, and we've been using the practice of awareness to engage with understanding uh, what is the, the nature of experience that we have through this body, through this form. And not our ideas about it, uh, not things we've read about it, but to directly engage with understanding this aspect of that which we call the body and a sense of continuity of that, and to explore that with our awareness. And as we explore these aspects of our life with uh, mindfulness, with this uh, sense of knowing, the other beautiful thing about this teaching is that uh, we know this for ourselves. So we can gain insight that we know beyond a shadow of a doubt. It's not because somebody else told us or because we read it somewhere, but we have had the direct experience. And so, even if someone else tells you it's not true, like, you know these things to be true. And you know it in your bones, you know it deep inside. So, uh, some of the aspects of this that it's helpful to tune into. So, fortunately, you know, the Buddha didn't just leave it as a, like, big, vast (laughs) uh, mass of stuff to uh, figure out. But there's some clues here. There's a lot of, like, very specific... Uh, aspects that he points to as um, helpful to notice, particularly to relieve suffering. So to solve this problem of uh, suffering and come to the end of suffering. So one of them is uh, understanding the nature of our experience and uh, to tune into in particular the way in which uh, things are not uh, lasting in the way we would like them to last, you could say. So I'm beginning to talk about this uh, three characteristics or marks of existence uh, they used to describe the way in which we misperceive or we misinterpret uh, our life. We misinterpret how things are. So the first one is uh, in Pali, it's anicca, and it's often translated as impermanence or change, so that everything is in flux. And as we tune into the experience of the body, uh, we can see that uh, through our own awareness. And some people asked in the you know, interviews, you know, when I try and tune into this form, uh, like what am I supposed to tune into? Because it seems like there's always different things happening. There's not something solid to grab. Or, you know, you're calling it a frame, but it's not like really a frame that you can stick with. And it's like, yes, that's true. That's actually <laughs> part of what you can see from tuning into this field of sensation is that which we call our body is this constantly changing, shifting, moving, uh, energetic experience. There's another uh, angle on uh, anicca as a word that uh, has to do with uh, how basically like nothing in our existence is able to be maintained to our satisfaction. Right? And now it's kind of bleeding into this characteristic of, of dukkha, of dukkha, uh, which often is translated as unsatisfactoriness or of uh, suffering or stress. Right? So 
because everything is changing and it's not changing according to our program, uh, our wishes, um, our scripts, then it's impossible to maintain anything uh, according to the way that we want it to. And there is a, a really a, a poignancy and um, in in that, in recognizing that, you know. So certainly one's own body, you know, we're unable to maintain our body uh, in some enduring way to our satisfaction. And I talked about this um, a couple of days ago, uh, you know, on a mundane level, like you wash yourself and then immediately you start to get dirty again. Right? <laughs> it's why we have to do laundry, right? Like a lot of us, like your body keeps getting dirty and then the clothes get dirty and uh, yeah, you take a shower and immediately you start to like <laughs> become uh, dirty again and smell. You brush your teeth and immediately, you know. Uh, it doesn't mean you shouldn't do those things, but, um, you know, we're kind of, we're kind of used to it, but uh, it's a sign like, yeah, it's, it's, it's endless, this, this cycle. Like we can't take some like shower that ends all showers, right? <laughs> <laughs> Right? Like, it's not possible. Would that there was, but there's not. Right? Now, that's, that's in some ways like a kind of humorous one, but um, in other ways, you know, very poignantly, people have recognized, like, oh, you know, like your, your kids, they grow up, and you can't control that they're going to grow up, you know? Uh, and you can't control who they grow into it. You know, you can guide them and try and feed them well and take care of them, but you're like... Ultimately, they're going to make their own decisions, and you can't maintain them in some way. You know, we can't maintain things in some way. You know, we can't maintain even you know cars, bikes, stuff like that, clothes. Like you try to mend it, and you do your best, but things are always eroding and corroding and falling apart, like all the time as we speak. Uh, relationships, so. You know, you marry someone, maybe a certain age, you make a choice to marry them, and then, yeah, maybe you have some relationship that seems successful 5, 10, 20 years, but you're going to be different people by that point, you know? By the time you're 50, you're different people than when you were 20. Uh, you know, that's, that's natural, that's the way things are. And maybe you grow apart, maybe um, you manage to maintain some relationship, but you can't keep things uh, static. You know, it's impossible to maintain your 20-year-old selves or your 20-year-old relationship or maintain your first date forever or something like that. And then, of course, in a um, more profound uh, or deeper way, your know, inability to maintain anything to our satisfaction, we can't keep people alive. You know, we can't keep alive those that we love. Uh, we can't keep alive our parents. We can't keep alive our pets. Uh, we can't keep alive our teachers. You know. uh, it's impossible. None of us has the power to do that. So this leads to this um, unsatisfactoriness. And you know, people had asked um, some in the, the interviews, like, why would you say that even pleasant experience is dukkha? Right? Because pleasant experience is pleasant. The other stuff you said, obviously, pain, illness, aging, that's like obviously bad suffering, willing to concede that, but even with pleasant experiences, we can't actually maintain them. You know? They're also part of this endlessly changing cycle. Uh, so they're not something we can take refuge in or hold on to, and therefore they are 
essentially unreliable. And then in some, this comes to the third of the characteristics. So anicca, this uh, impermanence or inability to maintain anything to our satisfaction, the stukkha or the unreliability, suffering, you could say even like ungovernor, um, ungovernability, if that's the word, of uh, phenomenon. Uh, anatta, so this is sometimes translated as non-self or not-self. And here immediately we kind of get into a pickle and start to get into fights about whether there's really a self or a not-self or, you know. So interestingly, the Buddha didn't actually make a big bone about is there a self, is there a not-self. In some ways, he was kind of focused primarily on, you know, what are the aspects of experience that we need to understand in order to free ourselves from suffering? So uh, he wasn't really concerned about that specific question, and in fact, often wouldn't answer that question. Is there a self? Is there not a self? This, that, and the other. But he pointed us to look at particular aspects of experience that we usually identify with and cling to to investigate whether or not this actually can be taken to be me or mine in some uh, way that makes sense. If we do take them to be me or mine, then we control them, then we can have some agency over them, uh, then we can not suffer. So we've been working with one of the primary ones, uh, the form. So invite us to investigate this form and to see into the nature of this form. And to see this form as it is, as something that is constantly changing, uh, as something that is constantly changing not under our uh, supervision in some ways, like not under our control. Uh, And in this way, you could say that uh, there's no place to find uh, a me who either can be this self of the form or who can own this form of the body, uh, who can be in this form, uh, like, it's impossible to find one except as a concept, right? as an idea that we have. But when you investigate it directly, it's not to be found. So here's one uh, teaching of the Buddha Sutta. The well-instructed disciple does not regard form as self, self as possessing form, form as in-self, or self as in form. So then this form of theirs may change and alter, but despite these changes and alterations, their mind does not become preoccupied with the change in form. So through non-clinging, they do not become agitated and are free from suffering. So as the body changes in all these different ways, if we don't take that to be me or mine, then uh, it actually can be just like nature. You know? It can be just like aspect of nature, and we don't need to suffer about it. So another uh, sutta the Buddha talks about, um, actually just this. So if a person were to gather twigs and branches and burn them, uh, would you think, uh, oh no, they're burning me? So maybe some of you who worked in the garden here this uh, week can relate to this. Like if you're weeding and you take wheelbarrows of stuff out, you know, would you think like, oh no, they're taking me out of the garden? So you wouldn't because uh, you wouldn't think that those are me or they, nor that they belong to me in some way. 
So even so, whatever is not yours, let it go. Your letting it go will be for your long-term welfare and happiness. So what isn't yours? And the first thing that the Buddha points to is uh, form, uh, this physical body, this animal body. So come at this from you know some many different angles, and um, and I'll say I'll put a little footnote that he also lists uh, four other things that he points out to that is particularly helpful to point out as uh, not you or yours. So I'll come back around to those too. So there's a way in which we can also perceive our life to be some continuity, you know, even genetically, biologically, right? Uh, the shape and form of your body was not uh, created by some entity you could call you. So for me, for example, uh, I'm the first one in my family to be born outside of the tropics, uh, actually outside of uh, Sri Lanka. So uh, I tell people like I'm sort of genetically engineered for the tropics, but then, uh, you know, uh, it's one reason why even at night here when it might not seem that cold, uh, I was using my blanket, and then I took Catherine's blanket also, and uh, <laughs> closed the window, and put you know flannel pajamas, all this stuff, right? Um, and then even you know the hair and the color of the hair, you know, it's, uh, the color of the skin, like it's all set up for uh, a lot of sun, and uh, <laughs> which uh, you don't get in Baltimore where I grew up uh, so much, uh, nor uh, that much in. Uh, San Francisco, but um, yeah, there's some you know genetic continuity that is uh, apparent here, and all of you too are in some ways like some genetic continuity of some uh, <laughs> unions, right? And then certainly there's some activity of your life, of the kind of food you eat and exercise you do, and how you cut your hair, and you know the environment during one's life also certainly has an impact, right? Um, particularly, I think for um, you know, children in the early part of life, like children who get good nutrition, uh, have a greater likelihood of uh, having better uh, growth and um, stronger bones and, and all that stuff. And you could see that too. So it's some sort of, you could say, karmic past causes and then some causes from this life. But anyway, it's all like highly conditioned. So in some way, it's like this is the... Uh, this is what shows up if you follow that recipe, right? This is in some ways the uh, only result that could come from that recipe, right? So there's some, you know, some part of it we might call self, right? So like, oh, like, why did you cut your hair so short in the side? You're like, I chose to cut my hair, right? But even something like that, you consider the mental formations around it. Uh, it's like, oh yeah, some part of what we call me was conditioned to think that looks good or that's uh, appropriate or something like that, right? Uh, so we're all conditioned, we're all influenced by a myriad of causes, even though uh, maybe, uh, you know, if you have a sort of Western psychology, you like to think like, no, it's me following my destiny, you know, forging ahead independently, you know, making my way. Uh, but, you know, when you examine even those beliefs and ideas, there's, yeah, largely kind of conditioned. There's a way in which there's not some uh, independent entity that seems to be driving through. 
And yet, then you might think, like, well, who came, who decided to come to Gaia House? <laughs> and uh, who decided to sit in meditation? Who decided to come to the Dharma talk, right? Uh, couldn't I say that's me? Right? And then on the other side, we try, we try and think, like, uh, who decided not to go to the last sitting, right? <laughs> or who decided uh, to sleep through the last Dharma talk, or, you know, any number of things. So in some way, one way to conceive of that is that um, there are also these arising factors of mind, and among them are like wisdom and delusion. And this is related somewhat to um, what I was referring to this morning when I was saying also a lot of the practice is um, knowing in some way what we should be doing, right? Uh, that we should be not clinging, uh, and yet uh, it seems like we're like, captured in this form, right? Like kind of ossified. And you can reflect madly on non-clinging and impermanence and stuff, but still you're like... <laughs> so why is that? Like the habit is strong, right? The habit is strong and there are moments in which uh, the wisdom factor arises and in which uh, we can maybe loosen up, but then the, the wisdom eye closes again and we're back to that habitual pattern of clinging. So a lot of humility, a lot of patience um, in this process. Um, but we can feel happy that we're in some ways like uh, on the right course, like you're in the right place. You know, There's some rare uh, configuration of uh, circumstance that uh, you're interested, the wisdom eye is opened enough to you know, kind of follow your nose to some Dharma teachings. You have the circumstances of life well enough to be able to show up also. Uh, and here we are, and it's, it's fortunate you know, for all of us together to be here. So I mentioned you know, there's these other aspects that the Buddha pointed out that it's helpful for us to uh, look into, investigate. So form is one, this is the physical form, and we've been doing this um, pretty well all week. Uh, second one we've been investigating somewhat, and this is this aspect of uh, feeling tone. Uh, Vedana is the word in uh, Pali. And this is the one about uh, the pleasant, unpleasant, neutral aspect. So this one also is something that uh, without us paying attention, we could take to be inherently me or mine, uh, the aspect of pleasantness, unpleasantness, or neutrality uh, of the body, of the mind, even sometimes of external circumstances. So this is another one that we're encouraged to investigate and to see as uh, arising, just arising and passing away. So none of them stay too long. Uh, and all of it is just arising uh, selflessly in some way. And the next three are um, a little bit more uh, complex. We move into the more the mental realm uh, Feeling could be called in the mental realm, but one of them is about perception. And we have been playing with this a little bit, so referring to noticing the way in which we attend to things, influencing what we see, so that our attention co-arising with uh, experience in some way. So for example, it could be that at some points during the day, uh, when you're not really practicing that much, yeah, it feels like the body's pretty solid. 
And then you come to the meditation hall, you sit, you tune in, and then it's just like this energy field vibrating. And then the bell rings and you're like, lunch. And so you get up and it feels like a solid body is moving to lunch. So notice this, like these are different perceptions. Perception of solidity, uh, perception of impermanence. So these perceptions themselves are also uh, conditioned, are impermanent, and are selfless in some ways. So there's a lot of interesting things to investigate around that, particularly around our misperceptions. So perception is just a factor of mind that arises, and it can be easy for us to misperceive something, so to take something to be what it is not. And this is, in fact, one of the, uh, the roots of our suffering is that we misperceive. We misperceive what is uh, impermanent as permanent. Uh, we misperceive what is unreliable to be reliable. And we go looking for stability there. Uh, yeah, in all these characteristics, we have a misperception. In a mundane way, again, uh, you could have a misperception like of seeing something moving in uh, the trees and thinking it's an animal. Uh, And then you look again and see it's just some leaves moving. Or uh, like if you're in an unfamiliar environment, like, um, you know, I see some plants or some animals and like I don't uh, know what they are. Like I can't identify them uh, properly or I misidentify them. Uh, so I was walking earlier, and then uh, I saw something that looks like a raspberry. So I took it and ate it. And then I thought, you know, I don't really know like if that's... <laughs> it, it, it actually it looks like what I think is a wild raspberry, but I probably shouldn't do that so uh, <laughs> casually because, like, I don't know all the fruits and faunas here. So, you know, it could be there's something that's, like, fake wild raspberry that's actually, <laughs> right, poisonous. You don't know, yeah. And, uh, you know, this is kind of true, unfortunately, about our experience. Like, we are (laughs) fooled by different things that uh, we take to be good for us, but actually they're they're not. Similarly, all of our mental activity, so uh, there's a word called sankhara, like our fabrications of mind, our drives, mental drives. We take these to be me or mine, and we get, uh, yeah, kidnapped by these different drives that arise. Uh, these um, mental energies. But if we pay attention more, we could actually see that these two just arise and pass away. Uh, They come unscripted, uh, like not having been called up by us. Some of them are helpful, some of them are unhelpful. Um, So it can be um, very liberating to be able to notice both the contents of mind and these kind of energetic drives as not me, mine, owned by me, and thus that we don't have to uh, carry them out. Of the, the drives, yeah, like a simple one could be like um, uh, like an intention that arises uh, for like grabbing something, you know, to get something, right? Like to get the raspberry, right? So that was sort of a drive, uh, and... Um, then I carried it out, and then I questioned that drive later. <laughs> right. uh, and you could say, like, maybe it was greed, maybe it's curiosity. You know, there's a variety of different possible concoctions uh, behind that. There's also another level in which we can investigate sort of 
wholesome, unwholesome drive, so skillful, unskillful too. Um, but even the skillful ones, even the wholesome ones, in some ways are impersonal. Right? Uh, and then the last one that we could investigate is um, consciousness or awareness itself. So that even in the knowing, even in the knowing of experience, uh, there's actually no center in that that can be called me or mine. That one can be a bit of a tricky one, um, but in, in, in some ways you might wonder, like, well, why should I inv- even investigate that? Um, it's partly because anything that we identify as me or mine, there's a sense of needing to protect that or a clinging to that, an identification with that, and in that, in and of itself, is uh, suffering. So that list is uh, something called the five aggregates. Um, that's uh, another helpful list that uh, was the Buddha talked about. And it's helpful in the sense that uh, the, the orientation of the teachings are for us to be able to investigate the world and investigate the way in which things seem solid, the way in which there seems to be some uh, personal continuity Uh, operating and in some ways to understand the nature of our human experience and particularly those factors which can lead to liberation so mostly what we're focusing on is not necessarily like am I this am I not but like how things work how things operate and to notice this clinging and non-clinging dukkha and freedom from dukkha So often as you know, meditation teachers, we focus a lot on uh, trying to encourage people and um, trying to kind of reframe things that seem difficult or like I'm going to throw in the towel experiences to like ways you could learn from them. Uh, but also I should mention that you know, it's possible from meditation and many people have uh, reported this to have uh, experiences that are very uh, beautiful, freeing, spacious, uh, wholesome, and to have on retreat some experiences in which you find that you're the happiest that you've ever been on your life. Yeah. And it can actually be kind of confusing sometimes because uh, it's not according to the recipe, uh, at least in America, for what is supposed to be making you happy, right? So it's like you should get a lot of stuff and you should have the perfect relationship and you should be rich and you should be good looking and you should be famous and you should get a certain title and you should have people giving you adulation. And, you know. and then on retreat, you've got none of that, right? Like you might have been wearing the same outfit all week, in fact, right? <laughs> I've like almost been doing that. <laughs> and nobody knows your name, or you know, nobody like calling you by your name or giving you like so much praise. And um, it's very helpful to me to notice that, you know, the times when you're just sitting here breathing and you're actually very contented. Or you're sitting having a cup of tea and it's like just at ease. Or you're walking back and forth and you know, really nothing's wrong. And there we have a taste of this you know, freedom from needing things to be a perfect way. You know, we can start to recognize like, oh, there's a freedom that's possible uh, without having to concoct all of these conditions.
So in this practice, we've been emphasizing the uh, resting with the body and then, you know, experiencing the other emotions and thoughts um, through the body. There are many different uh, meditation techniques also, even within uh, Buddhist tradition, within Theravada Buddhist tradition. Um, So another uh, teacher who had encouraged awareness of the body as a primary uh, mode of knowing and of attaining liberation is named Ajahn Moon. So here's a quote from Ajahn Moon. So he says, In your investigation of the world, never allow the mind to desert the body. So you could say the attention to desert the body. Examine its nature, see the elements that comprise it, see the impermanence, the suffering, the selflessness of the body while sitting, standing, walking, or lying down. When its true nature is seen fully and lucidly by the heart, the wonders of the world will become clear. In this way, the purity of the mind can shine forth timeless and delivered. So I'll read one more time. In your investigation of the world, never allow the mind to desert the body. Examine its nature, see the elements that comprise it, see the impermanence, the suffering, the selflessness of the body while sitting, standing, walking, or lying down. When its true nature is seen fully and lucidly by the heart, the wonders of the world will become clear. In this way, the purity of the mind can shine forth timeless and delivered. So even if uh, things that I've said this evening have seemed confusing or um, difficult, uh, in some way I appreciate Ajahn Moon's uh, very simple advice, sort of like be loyal to awareness of the body. Uh, Just keep practicing that. And we have now momentum of uh, many days of practice. And we have a period uh, also going forward of uh, full night, another full day, and a half day of practice together. So I encourage you to uh, continue with this. You know, if the mind starts to go towards the future, you know, what am I going to do when this ends? Where am I going to go? How will I continue? Just stay here, you know, very simply. Keep the attention here. And just continue the sitting, the walking, the practice. There's a way in which I have uh, so much faith in this uh, in this practice, in the Dhamma, in this ancient recipe that we're following. And uh, in some ways, uh, I can't remember if I mentioned this here, whenever you come in here, it's kind of like this Zafu, Zabutan, or your chair. They're like um, uh, cookers, little Dharma cookers, right? Like burners. And, uh, so your job is to come in and like let yourself be cooked. <laughs> yeah. So you have to be cooked there, and then you know, maybe the walking, it's like a moving grill there. <laughs> <laughs> So do that, let yourself get grilled there, and then come back in, sit down. Right. So don't worry so much, like, did, I, did it go well, did it go badly, did I have a good sitting, a bad sitting, am I a good meditator, I'm a bad meditator, you know, like all kinds of things will happen you know, while you're cooking, or being cooked. <laughs> and all kinds of things will happen in the process of purification, right? Uh, including a lot of icky stuff getting released, right? like difficult mind states or difficult experiences of the body. Uh, but just stay with it. You know, stay with it. You're on the, the good track for understanding the Dhamma and for attaining this liberation uh, that's promised to you. 
So thank you for your attention to the Dhamma this evening. So even as you release your hands from this, if you were having your hands together, you could feel, notice the form, the movement. And just feel how it is as you are sitting here. A return to connection to that. You could feel the aliveness through the breath. It could be there's some buzz of mental activity, but you get dropped down to feel even the basic animal aspects of the belly, feet. So through our sincere efforts, may we all attain the highest liberation of freedom for our own benefit and for the benefit of all beings.